Greetings, friends. Uh, a welcome to Breaking Change, the the favorite podcast of of at least a dozen people in Argentina. Uh, I had a, I, last uh, in version five. Uh, we we discussed how uh, a solicitor of podcast charting services mentioned to me that Breaking Change is the number fourteen tech podcast in on the charts in Argentina. And uh, so I was joking about that. And I actually heard from several people in Argentina that say that they listen to the podcast and share it with their friends. So uh, uh, thank you to the handful of folks who wrote in. Uh, Ariel uh, uh, was one of them and even mentioned that uh, yeah, he tells all his friends to listen to it. So uh, I, I, I should take that as a hint that maybe I should enunciate and talk more clearly, but uh, I'd rather just think of this as hard mode English, where I mumble and uh, don't necessarily speak clearly or cogently. Uh, well, it's good to, good to be back for another version. This is version six, uh, where pausing doesn't pause. I will I will explain later in the in the main meaty newsy section. Of, of what I got to talk about today. But, but, but before that, we've got all kinds of, you know, tasks and to do's to check off on our agenda, starting with uh, uh, life updates, you know, what's new. I, so I mentioned last, last time on version five, I, I'm, I, I'm trying to do a better job of not calling this a weekly podcast because I have committed to, to not follow anyone's rules <laughs> about podcasts, not even, not even my own. So I, I, I will do this when I feel like it, but it does make it really difficult to talk about it as anything other than an anthology with, with titles. So on a previous episode, I just, <laughs> shit, I discussed that, that uh, Becky was having a retreat from her, her build with Becky year one cohort of uh, clients and uh, it went great a brand new ever more complex a seven billion dollar resort facility it's, it's in sort of a it had a soft open last year but it's it's open now and the opening is still quite soft <laughs> it's kind of a construction zone uh, but they had a great time it's beautiful uh i got a lot done i got to see several of the ladies who, who i'd known from a prior life a couple of whom may even be listening right now they walk among us uh <laughs> Well, one of those nights while I was uh, in bachelor mode because Becky was actually staying over there in the in the bungalow that they rented. I am uh, saying bungalow, realizing there might be a proper definition for the word bungalow as in, in terms of what it is, uh, but uh, it's a vacation apartment, but with like four bedrooms that you know in the modern uh, uh, vacation rental. Uh, I, I guess uh, best practices is it's all about uh, heads and beds. So maximize the number of beds and the number of heads that can rest upon those beds to maximize your revenue. And this is a, it was a VRBO thing and then an Airbnb thing. And now, you know, this, this corporate complex isn't on that too. So, so I have no idea. I didn't get to go into there. Uh, they call it a flat. I didn't get to go in the bungalow and see how large it was. But assuming that every square foot was a bed, it could fit six or seven of those. So still not, you know, not small. So anyway, I, one of those nights I was on my own and I was feeling lonely. And so I do what I do. And uh, uh, I had plans to go over to my brother Jeremy's house for dinner. He was uh, very kind, cooked me dinner, made me a, a, a homemade spaghetti. 
with a pasta grinder <laughs> what do you shred, shredder you know when you turn the crank and then pasta happens i'm uh over 25 percent italian if you believe it uh, i should probably know the <laughs> what that is but we you know he had suggested we play some classic super nintendo games and he I, he already had a couple in mind, but I didn't know that. And so I started a, I hit the action button on my, on my iPhone 15 pro max. I hit the action button, which I have. And when you hit the action button, it just says, Hey, hold the action button to do something, which is a really, uh, useful, uh, 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 use for a button. So you, well, I held the action button for the, the 500 milliseconds. And when, when you hold the action button on my iPhone, I have it set up to open the chat GPT voice chat. It's basically Siri alt mode. Uh, it's like Siri if she was conversant. Uh, sorry, Siri is non-gendered. Uh, I think they started down the path of Siri being gendered. Yeah, this is an interesting kind of like dichotomy and like, you know, all the new products are sort of not named, obviously gendered things, you know, like Copilot is it's a role. It's a product name. Uh, Gemini kind of that's google's new one that's kind of you know rides the line chat gpt is is not only not gendered but it's it's barely english uh so siri uh that you know at some point apple declared it to be not gendered and and it very early on if not right away the uk version i think was was voiced by um a male actor in any case uh so siri is is not very conversant chat gpt is like having a conversation and the fact that it streams gpt4 so slowly they had to work so many I, I may have mentioned this on a previous version but like they work in so many verbal affectations that it really feels like you're talking to somebody uh and i had a blow away to use a an apple jargon uh uh experience talking to my my gpt4 on the way to my brother's house uh, i started the conversation got in the car i'm in carplay now he is they are it is uh conversing back and forth you know every time i speak it, it uh and then i pause it starts speaking and so forth and i asked it you know give me some super nintendo games that are cooperative that are fun to play and uh, uh the, the gpt responded with a few games and one of them was i think final fight three and i was like you know that's a great example like w give me some more beat em up games because those are kind of dumb fun you can just kind of go walk left to right and mashing buttons and have a drink have a chat and it started in its reply telling me about streets of rage which if you're a if you're a gamer uh real gamers know <laughs> that streets of rage is not a super nintendo game it was a sega genesis exclusive title uh maybe also in arcades and so it was suggesting streets of rage to me and i uh it even was saying it's a sega genesis game and I, i'd asked for super nintendo now if you've ever used chat gpt or one of these other ai chatbots you've probably experienced them being wrong or them hallucinating nonsense and typically to get to call to get any sort of corrective on that you have to call them out you have to say hey that's actually mistaken and then they'll apologize immediately which is a huge upgrade over how most humans react frankly to being called wrong and and then it'll it'll try to correct or sometimes it'll say hey i'm sorry and then give the exact same you know <laughs> reply this time I was all ready. I was, you know, I wasn't, I didn't even listen to the other three recommendations. I was so ready to tell it, Hey, you're wrong about the streets of rage thing. Uh, and it, it, 
it said in its own reply after listing the fourth recommendation, hey, you know what? I just realized that, 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 that Streets of Rage is actually a Sega Genesis game. Sorry about that. So in the course of its own reply, it came back around and self-audited the thing that it had just said. And I, you know, uh, if it's just a statistical model predicting the next word uh, that it that it speaks, you know, our conscience, our, our our streams of consciousness, you know, could also be, I guess, qualified as such. And they also do that. I'm doing it right now. Uh, but still, I'd never seen GPT self-correct in the middle of a response. Uh, so that was pretty cool. Uh, and I and I and anyway, GPT is my friend now, and we uh, I don't feel lonely anymore because I just hold down my action button for the requisite 500 milliseconds and I have a little chat about anything. Uh, really, about anything. About anything. I, I am very concerned about uh, my history leaking onto the internet, and I, I shouldn't be because I should just know that it's already probably publicly addressable. Uh, even if I click delete, I doubt it's a real delete. Probably best not to think too much about that. Uh <laughs> So anyway, had a wonderful evening. We played Zombies Ate My Neighbors, which was my brother's suggestion. And that was a game that came out, I think, in 92 or 93. And we weren't... Yeah, 93. And we weren't allowed to play it as kids. I remember Nintendo Power covered it. And we had every Nintendo Power magazine, you know. But we weren't allowed to play Zombies Ate My Neighbors. Uh, It was too sacrilegious looking, probably, to my parents. I don't even know if we chanced it. I, I think we probably saw it at Blockbuster and were like, you know what? It's not worth the political capital to fight for this one, buddy. We're going to just, we're going to go and we're going to rent Battletoads again and just get our asses handed to us in 10 minutes. <laughs> Anthropomorphic toads being violent is okay. But when we call them zombies, it's not okay. Uh, the game itself was actually kind of fun, but it's a uh, difficulty spike is, is ridiculous. And it feels almost like a carbon clone of uh, Toad Jam and Earl. And I don't know what the story is, but if you played Toe Jam and Earl, which is uh, incidentally another Sega Genesis exclusive, uh, it's kind of like a less put together, less. I think I don't think Toe Jam and Earl is art. I don't think it's a great game, but it seemed better than Zombies Ate My Neighbors. And And Zombies Ate My Neighbors definitely felt like one of those where you're exploring a map with a buddy and having to dodge a lot of bad things and then collect a lot of good things. So. Yeah, so we had fun. Uh, another life news. Uh, had a um, a day where my wrist was really hurting after um, I don't know what a weightlifting thing or a, a golf thing, and my wrist was hurting. And I I carry around this ornament <laughs> called the Apple Apple Watch Ultra Two. So I decided I'm going to give my wrist a break. I'm going to put this Apple Watch on its charger. I'm going to walk around my house just device naked because we we check in our phones at the door when we come into the house typically unless we need to take a picture or something. And uh, I, I, over the course of the next couple of hours, completely device-free, reading a book or whatever, uh, Becky was out and I was like, man, if she needs to get a hold of me, even somebody in my tight-knit family, would she figure out a way to do that? And what would those ways be? Now, we're in a house where I've got like 13 HomePods, 15 HomePods, I don't even know. It's a multi-generational household because we have every kind of HomePod and they're all over the place. Uh, I've got HomePods behind me right now staring at me. Uh, Actually, I got a third one for reasons that 
I will explain in a moment. Also plugged in for some reason in this room. Uh, and I was thinking like, how would she get a hold of me? And there's a, a couple things came to mind if it was an emergency. One, you know, Becky could log into the ring app and, and panic the system that would get my attention for sure. It would also wake me up, you know, but like, would she ever think to do that in, in, in the throes of an emergency? No. Two, she could use, think to use the intercom feature. Cause I've got intercom turned on, which would, uh, transmit her voice to all of our home pods in the house, but it's just a feature you never would think to use, uh, unless you were already inside the house. Like it's a home kit thing. Most people probably wouldn't even realize it works. Uh, it's supposed to work, but <laughs> I don't know that I trust that it would work. But beyond that, there's not much else. And it just feels to me like there should be a way by now, you know, what is it? 2016 to 24, 18, eight years in, there should be a way that home pods can, you know, receive calls maybe from like a select number of people, you know, and, and ringling. Uh, I know they do a little bit of notification sounding because if you send a text message with one saying, you know, Hey, dingus, send a text to so-and-so. Uh, and then that person replies, it'll do the little text ding upon getting the reply. You can also ask it to read your messages, but it can't, you know, there's no phone ringer. Um, it really does feel to me like there needs to be a panic button or some way to, you know, we don't, if we check our phones at the door and we have our watches charging in another room, you know, we do have like a monitored alarm system. So, Hey, don't, don't get fresh. Anybody don't get any ideas that you're going to pull one over in our domicile. But you know, in terms of, I'm talking about burglary now, get your mind out of the gutter. <laughs> the fuck? So, uh, if, if, if there was an honest to God emergency between the hours of call it 11 PM and 7 AM, I just wouldn't know. And and I'm mostly at peace with that. But if, if, you know, Becky and I are apart or if, you know, Jeremy's traveling or something, uh, or, you know, if I've got an act, an active and open Instacart order, any of these sort of things where you need to be available, uh, I don't, I don't think I've got a solution to that. So if anyone has any, uh, clever ideas, let me know. There's probably a way, probably a hinky way to do this by, by, uh, you know, MacGyver it with, uh, duct tape and, and sh this, the shortcuts app, uh, and maybe the, uh, uh, that app push cut that lets you use like kind of web hooks to get into your house. But then like, what am I doing? Am I writing like a custom app for Becky to like hit a button, you know, to, 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 to hit a URL, to go and make a dingling sound. I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe anyway, let me know if you got any thoughts. That's a podcast at Searles, which is spelled like pearls, but with an S dot co. Other life news going on. Uh, it feels weird. Tomorrow is the day that we are starting our very first real remodel renovation. When we, when we bought the house, there was a lot of work to do. We did all the floors. We repainted in, inside and out. Uh, there's a, some things to fix up. There's some light demo. Light demo. Uh, and it was expensive and it was time consuming, but we weren't living in the house through it. And tomorrow starts our bathroom renovation, and that's going to be two days of demo. And I, I made a, you know, a cute little schedule for the contractors that I'm sure will go out the window immediately because I don't know that any of them have computers. 
They all claim to look at it. Uh, uh, so, so it's going to be noisy and it means like we had to clear out everything from the master bath. And because the only way into our master closet, excuse me, main closet primary, I don't know exactly where we're landing at in terms of, uh, uh, primary bedroom real estate lingo in the postmaster era. Uh, anyway, you get the idea. The bathroom that I use every day, the main one, as well as the closet attached to that one, the only way to the closet is through the bathroom. So that means that we had to empty out absolutely everything from the bathroom because it's going to get demolished. Uh, and I guess I, I assume if I walk behind the house, it'll just be a big old hole in the wall like Superman popped out. It's my expectation. And if it's, if that's not what demo means demolition, I will be disappointed. Uh, <laughs> so we emptied all that out. Becky, uh, uh, it, the thing about it is it's so much bigger than the other bathrooms in the house that it didn't even make sense. Like as soon as I spent 30 seconds thinking about how to do this, uh, it was clear that for the sake of our marriage, we would move from one primary bathroom into two guest bathrooms. Uh, so she's in what is usually our guest bathroom and, and with clothes overflowing into the guest room and I'm in, there's a Jack and Jill, this is more real estate lingo, a Jack and Jill bathroom that connects two of the other bedrooms upstairs. Uh, you know, Jack and Jill being like, you know, that kind of adjoining bathroom between the two and there's two sinks and so forth. And so I've unloaded all of my crap from the bathroom as well as like a week's worth of clothing into that one. Uh, and so, so it just felt so weird moving out of your own bathroom into separate places. Like, like, is this what splitting up would be? You know, uh, I hope not. Well, you know, actually, well, you know what, we were playing music and we were having a good time. So, uh, as long as, as long as we feel good about it, whatever, uh, it was, it was pleasant. Uh, and, and it was nice because all of our stuff was already extremely well seg uh, segmented in that, like I had one thing of soap and a toothbrush and, uh, some shaving cream and very few other items. <laughs> so, so it took Becky a little bit longer to, to clear out her space, but she did a bang up job. And actually now the bathroom looks so fucking clean that I'm like, do we even need to remodel? <laughs> let's just, let's just empty it out every few years and it'll feel like new. Uh, and it's, uh, kind of how, how it does feel. Uh, I am getting stressed though, because as soon as tomorrow hits and like the, 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 the bathroom becomes a construction zone, you know, if I have to get up and pee in the middle of the night, what's to stop me from just walking, you know, walking right into the bathroom in the dark. And then it's like, you know, what if I stumble right out that the, the hole in the wall that the, the Kool-Aid man left when he, when he, when he dove through and yelled, Oh Yeah. You know, is that how I go? I don't want that. To, I don't want that to be how I die. That would be one of those. Justin died. And in the obituary, we're not going to explain why, which is going to make everyone think it's fentanyl. But like, honestly, it's how he'd rather it be. <laughs> uh, uh, and they would be right. So <laughs> if I mysteriously die in the next month, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's not going to be for reasons that we're going to disclose to the family. I'm just putting that out there. So that's life news. I'm not sure that we've had a single version of this podcast that I, I for which I went more than like 30 minutes without uh, discussing mortality to some extent. But if I do have to pee in the middle of the night, I think I'm just going to have to like walk mostly naked across the, the second floor 
uh, and and in Florida, in new housing developments, you are closer to your neighbors in the next mansion size home over than I've ever been in an apartment complex. Like it is, uh, you see everything and they see everything, especially if uh, only one is illuminated. So uh, hopefully the automated blinds will close at the proper time and not open too early the next couple couple weeks here. All right. So let's, let's call it a life. Uh, follow up. I got a complaint. First complaint about swears on the podcast. Uh, despite the, uh, the RSS having the explicit XML element toggled to true, Someone didn't like me swearing, uh, and they let me know about it. So, uh, to you, I say, I, I am sorry that you don't like my swearing. It probably means that those words mean something to you in a way that they don't mean anything to me, or maybe I'm just a worse person. Both can be true. It reminded me of a blog post years ago that Scott Hanselman wrote. I think it was something like profanity is not effective. And he was slagging on a couple of folks I know named uh, DHH. I guess I know all three of them, but DHH, David Heinemeyer Hansen, the, the Ruby on Rails fella. <laughs> there I am with fella again. Zach Holman being another. Zach was an early GitHubber uh, and gave a lot of talks around the world. And it was a very good speaker. Zach's a wonderful person. Uh, both Zach and DHH use a lot of swears. Uh, they are they are youths. By comparison to Scott Hanselman, who's a, who's a generation older, I'd, I'd say. If not literally, then definitely spiritually, but also, mm, I don't know. Anyway, Scott didn't like their swears, that it would have been more effective for them to come up with like better language or proper words or that it was unprofessional. And, uh, you know, they, they, they both, I think, said what, you know, I would say, which is it, it, they are useful expressions when they emphasize the degree of or emphasize or reflect, I suppose, like the degree of passion that one feels about a thing, uh, you know, have, have most of these swear words have lost all their original meaning. No one's no, you know, he mentions even in the post, right? Like, like the word fuck is nine parts of speech depending. And it, it's, I get it. I grew up in a really religious household where we had to use proper language and so forth. And I think it's important to be able to speak properly because that is a great way to uh, be socially mobile economically. Uh, I remember my first first client at Pillar Technology in 2010. I was in Farmington Hills for six months uh, building uh, an application with a great team. Uh, and we were there. We built the, built the app and Everyone, like we were talking about swearing six months in, and I swear a lot, as you might have, no as you may have fucking noticed. Uh, everyone on the team, when I when I mentioned, like, oh yeah, yeah, I swear like a sailor. They're like, what you? And they thought I was some goody two shoes. But like, what I really was was somebody who was afraid of losing his job <laughs> by saying the wrong thing literally ever. And so I was like, well, no, I just. You know, I, I, I work at a client site. So do you, like, I, I try to be professional. And I think what I saw in Scott's post, now that I think about it is, is professionalism virtuous or is professionalism, must it be seen in like a relative context? Like, is, is it, is it a form of control by a community or by an authority? 
uh, to to mandate our conduct or coerce our conduct in a certain way. That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it that's totally valid as well is a certain amount of professionalism is necessary to build an inclusive environment where everyone feels welcome. Uh, because if we're all just, you know, rage monsters and, you know, he, he, he I remember this in the post, he, he, he kind of like conflates swearing with uh, sexually lewd, you know, language and imagery. And of course, that's much less defensible because it's like illegal <laughs> in the workplace because uh, it's uh, hop skipping and jump away from from sexual harassment. Uh, I don't think they're the same thing, of course, but if I were to start a business of of just people, once I felt a power dynamic emerge, I would be more cautious about swearing, right? Uh, because to some people it reads, you know, when you when you're in a position of power, just reading like like what 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 neutral language might suddenly sound louder or sound more forceful if it's your boss saying it, and so violent language or 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 expressive language or passionate language or or, or volatile language might might be the best word for it that uh, uh, that can sound really intense and scary, and I, I certainly would not want that. So. This is uh this is just us hanging out. This is a this is a zone where I'm uh letting 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 loose a little bit. And and if that makes you uncomfortable, fortunately there are at least 13 better podcasts in Argentina's tech category that you could listen to instead of this one. <laughs> For fuck's sake. Uh <laughs> anyway. Uh got a lot of comments about the Vision Pro, of course, because I've been talking about it a lot. One piece of follow-up is somebody asked me if I've been using it at coffee shops or, or the like out and about. And the, th- the funny thing about that is I, I actually have been working from home more because the Vision Pro, especially once I put on my, my Bobo M2 custom strap situation, which is kind of more like the... It's closer to uh, uh, the the metal light bulb helmet hat that doc Brown was wearing when Marty first goes back to 1955. It's closer to that ergonomically (laughs) than the original like solo knit weave strap that comes with the vision pro. It's not attractive and it would take up my whole backpack and I don't want to change straps every time I go out of the house. And so that's oddly enough, that's the reason that I don't do it. (laughs) Not because I have shame or an excess of dignity. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I've been working from home more and because, you know, you can just dial away the immersion, I can go to the moon and I can go to other places. So I felt way less compulsion to go and work from other locations. And when I do, I'm content just bringing my laptop because I'm, I, you know, probably worth mentioning. It's now been three weeks and two days since vision pro launched. And I have easily clocked let's see that's 23 days i have clocked probably 130 hours on it just working just just programming i've been programming a lot and all but two hours of it has been with the vision pro on um it is immersive to me it's a bigger screen than the other screens and it's 
it sucks me in and I just cannot distract myself. I, uh, I play my music off to the side. I'm looking at a big fucking thing of code. And in a way that on my laptop screen, I'm just, just checked out enough psychologically or even at my computer desk, or maybe un- physically uncomfortable enough, that could be part of it, that whenever I hit a point of discomfort, either psychologically or physically, I want to hit command tab and go check my messages or check uh, my RSS reader or, or my email. And those all derail me. And I just have not experienced nearly as many derails uh, when I got the Vision Pro headset on. So yep, doing it mostly from home, haven't taken it out into public yet, have ridden on a couple airplanes with it, will probably... When I'm traveling for an extended period of time, I'm going to be in Japan for a while. Will probably uh, take it take it with me and and work with it everywhere I go there. Um, it hasn't launched in Japan, so it's, I'm going to be the most otaku weeb anyone's seen for quite a while. And hopefully at Ruby Kaigi down in Okinawa, uh, I'll be able to demo it for a few for a few friends who might be interested. Uh, let's see, uh, another bit, bit of follow-up in version five, if you notice the audio is weird, it is because I fucked up the audio <laughs> as a one man show. I suppose that's obvious that if there's anything happening, it's, it's probably my fault. I, uh, I won't get into it. I use logic pro to mix the show and I've got a template that I mix from, but it was the first time that I'd recorded, uh, a track inside of logic, as opposed to creating an audio recording in QuickTime player, which I'm, which I'm doing now. And I've done all the other times and it led me down a path of clicking buttons, which you should never do. Uh, and it resulted in me, uh, applying all of the plugins that I added in what is called dual mono mode. Cause microphones are mono. They're, they they do not have stereo channels. And so typically you got to, uh, sum up the, the, the audio waveforms. Uh, and this is, this is handled automatically to create a stereo track from a mono source. And, but I, I clicked dual mono cause I'm like, well, what is a stereo track made from a mono source except for two monos. And what I didn't realize is that means that it, 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 the plugins apply to either the left or the right side or some coupled version of them. And so some of my plugins were right and some of them were wrong and some of them were left. <laughs> uh, and so it resulted in weird, uh, uh, audio artifacting and an inability for the, the plugins to operate correctly. And, and so it, you know, my solution, I could detect this, the shit was sounding weird. The exports were coming out funny. And so like my solution was instead of look at the existing plugins, like what if I bought and added more of them? <laughs> so I added more of them. Uh, and, uh, uh, it was, I mean, just like programming, when you're, when you start from a, a loose foundation that isn't really stable and your, your impulse is to keep adding more shit on top you just create a jenga tower because now like any fixes that you do on the 15th floor are so precarious but if you change anything now at once you've gone down that path if you change anything in those fundamental settings whether it's the equalizer or or the compressor in audio speak uh now the, th- the shit that you did in the 14th floor in the like eighth plugin to compensate for those, for those fuck ups. Now it's going to be even f- further off because it's going to, th- that compensation will now be wrong. So just yet, you know, uh, lesson number 972, uh, in my career that when the foundation is, is, is weak, do not respond by fix by, by, by adding more shit. 
you know, spend the time, figure out what's wrong with the foundation, redo it if you have to, before you just slather on more mud onto the ball. So apologies for version five's uh, piss poor audio quality. I uh, uh, had some wonderful help from one of my favorite people, Gary Bernhardt. Uh, Gary is a, a real, can I say he's a real mensch? I am 2.7% Ashkenazi. Uh, I don't know that entitles me to be able to use Yiddish. I'm not a thousand percent sure that y- that that mensch is Yiddish, but I I feel like it is. Anyway, Gary's great. He spent he he actually downloaded the whole fucking Logic project, which I'm sure took up half his fucking hard drive. God damn! And he he looked at it all and he complimented several of my things and then gave me a uh, voluminous amount of things to work on. So. <laughs> Version 6's mix might take me a little while to turn this one around. I'm recording this on February 25th, which is a Sunday, and so by Thursday or so you'll get it, even though normally my turnaround is an hour. Uh, Yep, so sorry about that. Uh, I will try to get better. I'm learning. Speaking of podcasts, um, Mike McQuaid, who is a friend of the pod uh, and and frequent listener of this one because he live texts me (laughs) as he listens to it, Mike was on uh, another podcast uh, that I that I love, Change Log and Friends from our from the Change Log Network. Uh, Change Log is a programmer focused, uh, especially open source focused podcast uh, empire network. And Friends is a uh, a channel that they just started, or a series that they just started, where they talk to people that they know and have more like laid back conversations. And Mike, uh, he is the lead maintainer of Homebrew, which is. Uh, the most popular way to install command line interfaces, like 35 million users in, in, in the Mac platform. And, he, and and Mike has recently launched a new uh, uh, business called Workbrew, along with John Britton, uh, both previously from GitHub. And, and, and Mike went on to talk about it. Uh, Mike also just, you know, uh, I am realizing through this two-hour podcast that I listened to over there, I, I haven't seen Mike in person since 2019 when we were both in Kaiki for... Um, in Fukuoka, uh, Mike and I are kind of like, we sound like we're brothers from another mother where, uh, his was more Scottish. I will give, I will give him that. Uh, he's got a cooler accent for sure. Uh, but we both have a, uh, real appreciation for an attention to detail. And so if you, if you feel a kindred spirit with me about mindset, uh, and philosophy, around programming, uh, as well as just about user experience, about how, how to comport oneself and how to, how to think about the problems in the world, uh, and, and in your life, uh, uh, good podcast episode to listen to. So that's another thing. One thing he talked about that I think about, um, a lot, um, but I don't think to ever mention to anyone is he mentioned one, he's a Safari user on purpose. And I am a fellow Safari user on purpose. Uh, Safari has been my favorite browser since it launched <laughs> uh, on the Mac, uh, what, 2003. Uh, and because it's so minimal, it, it, it does what it says on the tin. They focus on it being really fast. They don't add a lot of user Chrome. There's no fluff and it's still really fast. And Chrome I had been using when Chrome first launched was really fast and then it got really not fast and now it's you know feels like bloatware that's like kind of uh, a portal into an ad network as much as anything else uh and and you know yes it's got a cool extension ecosystem and yes the dev tools are a little bit better but i love safari and he mentioned that he's a tab minimalist mike did 
that he curates his tabs throughout the day. And I wish I did that. I, I, I feel just a tinge of worry that the shoddy history feature in Safari and, and, and if Chrome had a good history tab, like I, I might actually switch, but Safari's inability to like show me things that I've been looking at, um, clearly when, when I go through 400, 500 tabs a day, at least, uh, makes me feel a uh, scarcity around closing them. Normally, like I close every window. Like when I open an app, I will typically close every other thing. Uh, but with Safari in particular, I will, I will let tabs pile up while I'm working and I'm not particularly disciplined about, uh, making the windows multiple windows, but each with many tabs, making that mean anything. I kind of just reach a point of frustration and then I'll pop open a new window and then that becomes lousy with tabs as well. A couple things have worked for me. One is uh, the latest version Sonoma of macOS added a, I think it's a file add to doc is the command in the app. And it creates just like add to home screen in um, iPhone. It creates a little app wrapper for just that website. And if you're already logged in, it'll automatically slurp up your cookie. So you'll still be logged in there. Uh, there's just no address bar. There's no tab interface. You're just in it. And uh, I've been using that for the Synology dashboard because Synology's like um, uh, administrative UI actually looks kind of like a um, an operating system. It looks like a little Linux desktop, so it actually works really well as an app. I've also been uh, using it for Stripe's dashboard because I've got a similar, like I've, I've had it open all day, every day. So rather than have it open 20 tabs, I may as well keep it open in its own app. And I have found that that has cut down the like root number of tabs that I have open at any given time quite a lot. Uh, I wish I could do that for my dev server. I just have too many situations where I need two tabs or three tabs open, or I need to get to the URL bar to manually hack it. Uh, let's see. Oh yeah, the 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 only other solution I, I mentioned I have two ways of working with this, and this is something that I've been doing since I don't know whatever the first version of Mac OS X was that tried to remember your shit being open after a reboot, uh, and it still does this. And there's like one preference that will like on an app by app basis ask it not to reopen all the windows from the app from the last time, and I always turn that on. But before I quit an app especially a tabbed app where I'm consuming a lot is I will hit, I will press and hold command shift W to close all the tabs, uh, and the window. And I will do that. And then once there are no more windows or documents open for, for that application, then I will hit command Q. And that is the best way to live your life. If you use a Mac every day, full stop. So command shift W it's awesome muscle memory. If you fuck up and you hit it, and you're in Safari, you can always go to the file menu or the window and, and reopen last closed window and you'll get all, all of it back. And it won't even reload the pages because it knows people do that and, and they'll bring it back for you. Uh, so that's, uh, that's my only little minimalism tip, but I was excited to hear Mike on the podcast talk a little bit about his, his essentialist beliefs uh, and, and how that inspires how he works. Uh, uh, and I, I felt a lot of kinship. So thanks for that, Mike. Well, that, that about does us for follow-up, so it's probably a good time to, to bring the pun of the day. Uh, the, the pun of the day is uh, uh, brought to us by our only sponsor, Aaron Patterson, also known as Tender Love. 
who has contributed uh, all of these puns, despite I am not sure ever listening this far into any of the episodes. Uh, Aaron, uh, you see, Aaron is a creator. And like me, he uh, 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 speaks twice and listens once. But also, you know, he he's not he unlike me is not just like walking around his existence with a podcast uh, going in his ear all day long to kind of drown out uh, uh, his, his the voice in his head. So uh, no hard feelings, but he offers these puns up. And what I do is I, I will usually the night before when I realize I might record the next morning, say, hey, man, I need a pun. And uh, I know it's better if I give him a prompt. So I, I say, hey, maybe about this or this or this. He, uh, he does give me these puns, but I feel like I'm making, I'm making Aaron do free labor and I'm adding to his burdens. So I thought it would be good to sponsor Aaron. So I, um, Aaron wrote a really good blog post. So this is, I guess, maybe a sponsor read. He wrote a really good blog post. Uh, I'm not going to tell you about it. I'm just going to tell you to go look at it. And it's at tenderlovemaking.com. So just trust me, (laughs) just go to that website, tenderlovemaking.com. Dot com, and you get to read Aaron's cool blog posts. <laughs> Just do it. Do it now. Pause. Do it. Uh, yeah, so we get to read, a, read his pun, and then we're going to rank it against all the other previous five puns. Uh, it is sent, as always, via iMessage in Invisible Ink. Uh, and uh, I'm going to hover over it now. I'm going to take a breath. And I'm going to read it with my mouth words. I'm really glad Americans are finally embracing tap to pay. It was real touch and go there for a while. (laughs) Oh, fuck. I'm really (laughs) glad. Jesus. Well, that was the first. Must be good because it was the first time I broke while reading uh, Aaron's putt. (laughs) Collect myself. You're a professional podcaster. Damn it. I'm really glad Americans are finally embracing tap to pay. It was real touch and go there for a while. Okay, that was that was a 90% didn't break, but I still there was a little tickle in my throat. <laughs> All right, so copy paste time. We're copying it into the spreadsheet. Version six, February twenty-fifth, twenty twenty-four. Where does this rank? I, I gotta say this is the, well, it being the first one to make me laugh is maybe a sign of its quality. Maybe I'm just in a good mood though. So I I should consider it on the merits (laughs) as I drag it to first place with, uh, prejudice. First place is currently breaking change. Sorry. I don't carry cash, uh, from version one. In third place, we've got, I wonder what tapas restaurants have to say about this EU app store ruling, which is about as overwrought as that episode was when I realized I probably shouldn't just talk about EU and Apple policy intersections for for an hour. Uh, I will twist myself into the same sort of knots that they have twisted themselves into. Uh, this This is more my speed. So yeah, number one, the best pun to date. On Breaking Change, version 6, Aaron Patterson's, I'm really glad Americans are finally embracing tap to pay. It was real touch and go there for a while. Man, I, uh, that reminds me of during COVID, 
how, you know, I was living in Japan for the first six months of, of the COVID of, of the COVID <laughs> with Becky and we were in a rural area and, and in Japan, QR codes were a thing because Asia adopted them generally for lots of purposes, you know, like a QR code based payments, the year leading up to it, PayPay was a Japanese payment, uh, a processor that was QR based where you'd scan a, a vendor's QR code and then you'd, you'd pay them money, I guess. I, I never used it because I, I think, I think, hmm, I don't know if it had to be tied to a Japanese bank account, but like, I, you know what? The reason I didn't fucking sign up for it is I was an American, goddammit, and Americans don't scan QR codes. And there was even a Tumblr, remember? It was uh, people, pictures of people scanning QR codes.tumblr.com. And it had been there for years. And the joke was that there were no posts yet. <laughs> and I would send people the joke whenever QR codes came up because QR codes were so obviously a failure outside of Soviet China. I threw up. Oh, okay. I said Soviet China. I meant to say communist China. Let the record show. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm slap happy from just how good this pun was. Yeah. So I mean, QR codes, no one used them outside of, uh, um, the people's Republic of China, China. And apparently some corners of Japan that were, you know, trying to build an app ecosystem similar to China's. Uh, and I, I came home, you know, six months into COVID, I was like, you know what I need is some, some freedom. Uh, it's not actually how I felt at all. I was terrified. Uh, I, I came back to America, sat down at an, at a socially distanced outdoor restaurant after a while, after, after kind of realizing that this is just life now. Uh, and uh, they handed me a QR code thing, or there was one at the table. And I was like, are we, did I, did I just sliders? <laughs> Am I in an episode of sliders? Did I go through a portal to the alternate dimension where Americans like got snookered into using QR codes for shit? And the answer was no, this, <sighs> you all dropped the ball while I was gone is what I mean to say. And so now we have QR codes everywhere. Uh, and at least the silver lining is at least we also really picked up in usage for tap to pay. Uh, cause, cause Apple pay is awesome and I use it everywhere and, uh, hell it, it's even, uh, 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 QR codes already being a thing in Asia, QR, uh, uh, Apple pay NFC payments are also like generally pretty accepted in Japan now too, which is pretty great. Not a, not a super credit cardy culture though. So there's lots of cash only places still, but Oh, QR codes, man. Well, moving right along. Let's, let's, thank you, Aaron, for your number one pun. News items, two news items today. Um, one's a, one's a quickie. Uh, he says usually incorrectly about how long things take him to do. Uh, post quantum cryptography for iMessage. Uh, this is a, a, I'll link to one of the stories about this, but one of the things that, that Apple has been saying about iMessage as a protocol is that they can't open it up. You know, they can't do the back door that the UK wanted to do in the name of child porn or stopping child porn. It was, it would, the law was either pro or anti. I didn't read it. Uh, <laughs> they won't open it up for like the FBI after the San Bernardino shooting 
they won't. And the reason is that like, if you, if you give a backdoor to the good guys, they could actually be the bad guys or they could just fuck up and leak the, the, the key or a bad guy could find the key. So, you know, there's no way to uh, securely have encryption and also have a way for like some people to be able to break it. And we know this, and this is a, a techie fella, <laughs> a techie person podcast. So you're probably aware that uh, encryption between two parties for it to be secure can't just be read by somebody else. And Apple has beaten this drum over and over again as a reason for no interoperability in iMessage because unless they own all of the clients, and you, you know there was a recent scandal about this third-party app called Beeper and Beeper Mini in particular for Android to like, you know, break open, break down the the, the blue bubble wall between the platforms. And Apple said then, it's like, this is about security. This is about, like, unless we own all the clients, we can't attest that the way that they're encrypting and decrypting these messages is, um, you know, maybe they're adhering to the cryptographic standard because they're conversant with the other apps. But who's to say that, like, you know, you don't also have a keylogger installed or something else in the code that's doing something bad. It also, to have that interoperability, there is... You know what? Um, Apple stops updating old iOS operating systems after a certain point. You know, like, and they uh, they they effectively sunset the really old iOS operating systems by vintaging the iPhones that are stuck with them. So it's a long runway, super long. Like iMessage only came out, I think, in 2011 or 2012, uh, and and it's probably just in the last few years that that Apple could be certain that nobody is using iMessage. Or, or, you know, functionally, nobody is using the iMessage version that like they pushed out in 2015. Uh, but 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 that's the kind of horizon they have to worry about when it comes to compatibility. So for them to do something drastic to increase the security, just even if they control every single client is really goddamn hard. They've got to do version negotiations or, or capability negotiations between the different clients. If you're in a group chat, that means all the participants need to be able to handle the, uh, because, because even though Apple relays the messages, they're effectively encrypted between the participants. So everyone who needs to be on a new phone or a new, what, what's coming up in uh, iOS 17.4 is this post quantum cryptography level three on this level five or five level uh, matrix that Apple invented to make itself sound smart. Apple's pushing that out now in part because it literally takes 10 years to, for the floor of interoperability to be high enough that you'd be able to reasonably confidently say that everyone in the conversation is using this new version of the protocol. Uh, and what does quantum cryptography really mean? Like, you know, I, I'm not a quantum computing expert. I still get really confused about it. I, I've, I like to watch videos about quantum computers and what quantum computing means because I, uh, similar to an unobserved qubit, <laughs> I will think I know, but then I will simultaneously not know. And I'll just keep on oscillating in that superposition of understanding and not understanding what the fuck any of this means or why it matters. So I'm not the guy to ask about, uh, you know, why it is that quantum computers break cryptography other than that they also break my brain. Uh, but it's a useful thing to bring up when you're also in a discussion around uh, trying to force these messaging platforms to somehow be interoperable 
because if we've learned anything about protocols and interoperability, it, you have to have some least common denominator for everything to communicate. And if that least common denominator is, is I think people are comfortable about it when they, when they think end to end encryption, but if the end to end encryption is based on, you know, traditional, you know, uh, or older, you know, like let's say 10, 24 bit RSA, you know, public private key pairs, right? Like an older standard with a high, you know, um, a large key size that is, you know, would be agreed upon in a moment in time. And then 10 years, 15, 20 years would pass and it would take, and, and getting everyone to move forward in lockstep takes a lot of coordination and collaboration and, and, you know, people's minds change. Maybe one party has a strategic or, or technical or legacy reason to be on, you know, uh, the old stuff. And, and it's just way, way harder to make a secure communications tool that also has to play well and interoperate with everyone else's. So I was, I kind of felt like Apple throws security out as a, as a FUD, as a fear, uncertainty, doubt, boogeyman in a lot of these kind of, you know, policy discussions. But the fact that they're trying to push forward cryptography such that if somebody is listening to all your iMessages and like you got a man in the middle attack and they're collecting all the messages that are happening between you and somebody else. Cause like no one's got a quantum computer in their room. Well, some do, but not me, but somebody could just monitor all of the communication between two people and hold on to that encrypted traditionally encrypted messaging for, for months, years, decades, and then as soon as uh, a quantum computer can easily trivially break that encryption, then you can just load up that hard disk and say, Ooh, I can read all these tawdry messages. And from the, from, from the days of yore in 2020. Uh, so anyway, it's good to get a standard that's ahead, significantly ahead of where technology will be so that the window of how old of messages that were, you know, uh, stored at rest for a long period of time could be cracked. So I, I, for one, embrace our quantum overlords. Thank you, Apple. Now for what I guess is today's main event. The, the reason that I felt compelled to get on the mic and tell you what for. And the explanation for this version's name, which is, uh, what did I say that it was? Pausing doesn't pause, right? This goes out to Stripe. I am, I'm realizing that, uh, you know, I used to tweet about bugs a lot. Um, then I'd write, you know, when I stopped tweeting, I'd start writing blog posts about bugs. And it's not fun because you have to replicate the bug, which itself is very hard, re reproduce it reliably so that you can get screenshots or videos. And then you take all that documentation and then you got to explain it. And then you got to kind of like, at least craft a narrative of like how the bug might be manifesting or why and what would the fix maybe look like. But doing that is work and it doesn't pay and people might think it's like, aha, funny uh, people, you know, have come to know me for it, but it like, as I get older, I just don't have time for it. I'm like, everything's broken. Things are more broken than they ever were. Like, why am I spending time? Like, I took like 35 screenshots of this, this stripe thing I'm about to talk about. And I was like, what am I going to do with this? What like, am I really going to like spend? I, here's the reason, right? 
this bug caused me to waste several days of my life. Why would I give it more days of my life to write an awesome blog post takedown? Even if the corporation was going to see it, even if, uh, you know, it was going to move the needle, even if it was going to get my thing fixed, you know, behind a certain point, like, or I could just work around it like everyone else does and just say, fuck it. So, uh, I'm not quite ready to just say, fuck it, but I am ready to go on a podcast and say, fuck those guys. Am I right? To, to at least try to like get this out of my body. So, uh, Welcome to our recurring segment, how a one hour task somehow consumed me for three days this week. <laughs> uh, also, uh, alternate title, how COVID broke Stripe, uh, which is an interesting anecdote that I heard along the way. So I'm building this app for Becky that's, um, you know, spoiler alert, it's a paid application. And if you want to, if you want to take people's money on the internet, uh, and you don't want to give away 10 to 30% of it to somebody else. Stripe is a great choice. Stripe is a popular choice, probably used with by more merchants in the world online than anybody else, especially when you consider how Stripe Connect as a platform for other platforms uh, enables so many businesses, small businesses to collect credit card payments, bank payments, all sorts of shit online. So Stripe's great. Stripe's really popular. Stripe is... Because it's the incumbent, I come into my experience trying to get Stripe to work with the expectation that it is straightforward and simple, in part because they came out of the Ruby community and they had a reputation for having a really fucking rad API. Like, it was clear. It was like one of the first, if not the first company that was like an API company. And other ones came along too, like Twilio with, with being able to text and you know now other stuff. But it was where the product was an API and the consumer was the developer or the or the engineering company uh, that's building some piece of software. And it was a that was the product. The API was the product. But increasingly, as you know, they've kind of saturated the developer market, it is like they've had to branch into other things, like 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 low code or no code, you know, where they're hosting the UI and, and their dashboard is kind of defining everything. All that's really good. It's just bigger now. And I asked some of my Rubyist friends, hey, you know, I thought Stripe was awesome. And they're like, oh, it was so awesome. But like maybe only until 2013. And then it kind of got shitty because they had to slather on more mud because of legacy. And new features that didn't quite fit. And so the, now the, the model used to be really tidy and straightforward. But like when you also have to like consider, you know, uh, like... They, I think they do payment processing for like Alipay uh, overseas. Like they have, you know, they have to consider the like tax implications of like India in the same domain model that they do in Florida. Um, there's just, like, I don't envy them. Payment processing is not just impossibly hard, but like it's probably more a matter of limiting liability and decreasing the overall size of fuck ups. Um, in just even something that is conceptually simple as like add up the amount of payments and then the dollar amount, right? So I should have known this going in. So I, I came in maybe with too high of expectations. But one thing, and I talked about this last episode, 
that I was excited about was this new link by Stripe product where for new apps, like if you go and you pay for a GPT plus, this is the experience you get. You say, I want to get, I want, I want to pay for you 20 bucks a month and you click a button and it will, what, what I now know it's doing is it will call an API and create a new checkout session uh, with the, with the appropriate product. This is a subscription product that they want to sell you quantity one, uh, maybe an email address pre-filled. And then it will redirect you to a Stripe hosted page, uh, which can be on a subdomain. So I think it's like pay.openai.com. And then what you see is a Stripe UI. And the Stripe UI, the fact that it is a Stripe UI is wonderful for many reasons. One is it could remember your payment information so it becomes effectively one click. But like additionally, it can handle collecting uh, sales tax or VAT or you know allowing you to do Apple Pay with no extra work or allowing you to do ACH or or pay through with your um, you know Square Cash account or whatever it is. They, they, you scroll through the list of like ways you can let people pay you and it's um, absurd. Uh, so that's really neat, and I was excited to be using it. The other thing that's nice about that checkout UI is that it can sort of double as a billing portal. So you can just like uh, for for new purchases, you can tell people to go to this checkout. For existing customers, you can tell them, "Hey, I want to create a new session of the billing portal for this customer's ID." And if you have the setting set, which I do, of limiting each customer to one subscription at a time, then when they click through. They will uh, go and see their currently active subscription if they have one. They can edit their payment method. They can add, uh, edit their billing information. And one of the things that they can do is they can cancel out of the box. You know, you can cancel. Look at the subscription. You can click cancel. Uh, I don't have to implement that entire you know uh, fl workflow. And I don't know for sure if this is on by default, but I think it was on by default for me. Um, that or, or maybe Becky checked it in the in the dashboard before. But there's a pause feature in the dashboard. This is where I came to be aware of Stripe having a pause feature. And when you enable pausing, uh, you, you as a customer now, I'm a customer. Instead of cancel, what if I look? Like, what if I don't want to like? What if cancel feels too dramatic? Like I, you know, I I want to keep learning this, you know, if it was my Japan app, if I, if this is how my Japan flashcard app, Kamiasame, if, if I'd chosen to make that a paid product, you know, I wouldn't want people to feel like they're canceling on their learning. So having a pause feature that says, Hey, I can't afford it this month, or I'm not using it much this month or whatever, or, or the next two months, I'm going to be busy having it pause automatically for two months and then come back in, in a couple months and, and, and restart the subscription, hopefully with notifications and so forth. That seems like a reasonable thing to want. And hey, look, just like all these other things that Stripe's UI does for you, uh, you can uh, pop in, click a button, and get that feature. So I had anticipated using this, and, and on around day, it didn't take me too long, like probably two and a half days, I was very comfortable with the basic flow of the Stripe stuff um, from zero, from having like no data model, no, no web hooks, no cron jobs yet, no... Uh, no understanding of like what the typical flow is, having never visited any of Stripe's API docs in all this time. So as you know, I, I felt pretty good. The, my UI looked good. It gave you a manage button that would create a checkout session if there wasn't a subscription or a you know a billing portal if there was and update the customer's information first to, know, to, to make sure that the state was right. So this pause feature, like I just trusted it. I was like, of course, you know, I know what pausing means. If I'm a customer and I'm pausing a subscription, I want it to resume after two months or three months. 
there are two ways that I could imagine that pause feature working sensibly. And this is what I was thinking through as I clicked it and then observe what was happening over the API after having clicked it for an account. One way is, you know, you could imagine a pause, pausing the subscription immediately. Like, so if, if I'm 15 days into a 30 day month long subscription, and maybe I normally get charged on the 22nd. So, so I've got like 15 more days, normally charged on the 22nd. So it's like the seventh or whatever. And maybe it freezes immediately that subscription. And maybe that means then when I unpause in two months, my subscription bill date moves out, you know, accordingly. So if I was 15 days from getting from, from being billed, uh, then I would unpause whenever that unpause occurred. I'd still be 15 days out from getting billed. That way I'm like, you know, conserving all of the money that I spent and not wasting a minute as opposed to a cancel, which you should probably get paid, be able to use the product through the end of the currently paid period. That's probably in my opinion, the best way to pause because it says, Hey, I really want to pause like, like, and I will be back. You know, I think that's the, the most customer friendly way to do it. But alternatively, if it's important, say, um, in the in the payment processor's data model, to have a uh, pause mean this month is paid for, but then when I say pause for one month, what I'm really saying is pause for one period. So next month, uh, what it does is it generates a void invoice by default. Uh, next month, I will be paused. And then the month after that, I will come back and I will be charged again. That second way, also fine. All I honestly didn't care. I was it was it was a curiosity until I looked at the API of the subscription object back from Stripe after a pause had occurred, and what was in the subscription object was the status was still quote unquote active. I was like, well, that's weird. And I looked through, and there was you know there's a pause collection thing. It says void the invoices, and it says resumes on, and it gave me a timestamp. I was like, oh okay, cool. So it knows it resumes on a certain time. And then I uh, fast forwarded, you know, like uh, to the end of the segment, assuming that like maybe the pause starts at the end of the period. And so I, I fast forwarded a month, uh, you know, I, I said I basically had paused it indefinitely, so I could test. And there's a test clock feature in Stripe where you can fast forward people into like uh, running a simulation of like, what will this account look like three months from now? So I fast forward at three months and there are three new invoices still on the same normal invoice day, all void, meaning $0, but the subscription status is still active. And it still says, you know, like resumes at, you know, is either nil uh, or, or a, a time, whichever, it doesn't matter. So now I'm thinking, okay, so the subscription stays active, even though there is a subscription status called paused, it turns out that subscription status is just for trialing customers who don't add a payment method. So if I, if I'm on a trial and I don't add a payment method and then the trial ends, I am now in this paused state, which is like fine by me. That's kind of what paused means. I'm, I'm in a, in a sort of, I shouldn't have access to this thing yet or the subscription because I'm not paying for it. I'm not entitled to pay. I'm not entitled to it. Why does it still say active? And if you go to, which I should have brought up, but in um, my commitment to myself, I did not prepare for this podcast. Uh, there's a documentation page and the documentation page on pausing 
it has nothing to do with what the user sees in their own fucking billing portal. It's about like, hey, you know, if there's like a handful of situations where like you as a business want to just give away your services for free to one user or to all your users or to temporarily like halt operations so that you can't like give your product away, right? Um, uh, excuse me, you, you want to halt operations so you can't distribute the product that people are paying for. So you want to pause collections. So it's all about giving the product away for free or otherwise stopping collecting. You're pausing collecting dollars, dollar cash money on one user or all your users, which is like, that's sure. That sounds like a great feature. I don't know a lot of times. I don't know a lot of businesses who would be, you know, champing at the bit to be like, Hey, payment processor, please find me a way to just give my shit away for free. That would be great. And so I'm looking at that. I'm like, man, that makes no goddamn sense. And so I think about it. And then I think about all the other subscriptions I have that have this pause feature in turned on in a Stripe checkout or billing portal UI. And I like, I went to one and I clicked pause and I still had the service. (laughs) And I was like, oh, fuck. I bet you no one else knows that pause doesn't mean pause because when you pause in the dashboard, what you really did was you clicked the button that turns on the feature that's actually not designed for customers to control, but rather for businesses to control to give away the product for free. Now, it's true that I'm sure a non-zero number of very attentive developers uh, building apps on Stripe's API will do the math and they'll look at it and they'll be like, okay, so it check is, is it an active subscription? Yes. Is pause collection non-null? Yes. Is there a Uh, If so, that means they're paused. In that case, then I have to do another API call, list all that person's invoices. R is the invoice that covers the current period of time that I'm in. Is it voided or is it paid? If it's paid, then you can give them the product. If it's not paid, then you can't. Then you withhold it. But that's like at least one more API call every time you want to answer the question of is the subscription active? Um, so how could that be like, so yes, I'm sure that very like, like good programmers, quote unquote, who are really on top of shit are intentionally turning this customer driven pause feature on. And then they are doing the work on the back end to make sure that like users aren't getting free access to their shit without paying, but path of least resistance. And the fact that it says pause on it and sure it looks like a customer focused feature and not referencing some business focused thing. I suspect that if you use any apps that have that like Stripe checkout UI and you'll know it when you see it with the white on the right and the brand coloring on the left uh, and you've got the the big red cancel or big black cancel uh, or, or manage subscription and if there's a pause button, I encourage you to pause it. Pause it indefinitely and see if you ever lose access to whatever you're subscribed to. Uh, <laughs> pro tip. <laughs> it's the ultimate promo code. Uh, really promo code. So I was uh, really frustrated about this. And I, 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 Gary Bernhardt enters this conversation again. Gary runs uh, executeprogram.com, which is a, honestly, if you're a beginner, pro, no, not beginner quite, but if you're like a sophomore at programming, uh, execute program is a wonderful way to learn a new, uh, it's a very interactive, very uh, designed to help you memorize important concepts and lead you down a path of scaffolding those concepts in programming. Uh, there's a TypeScript course, a Python course, uh, uh, SQL, regular expressions, a whole lot of concepts that are useful for programmers that are like, you know, 
non-trivial skills to pick up. Uh, he, he does Stripe, you know, he has a self-hosted UI and I was talking about needing this pause feature and he was, you know, pushing back on like, Hey, pausing is actually kind of like an exploitative feature because you should just let users cancel and then make it really easy for them to uncancel as opposed to like prey on the, the fact that they feel bad about canceling to like just necro the, the subscription one to, to end months later, uh, to have it, you know, kind of be a zombie and come back and start charging them again. They might not even realize which I I'm, I'm amenable to that argument for sure. But I was like, but really though, like how did this feature ship Slack also has, excuse me, Stripe also has a discord, not a Slack that anyone can sign up for. And it, it, I think it operates on business hours. It's really cool. Like I could sign up, I could take an auto invite to this discord. I could say in their dev help channel, Hey, I got this question about how pausing works. And then they have like a dingling bot that I think round robins some number of support engineers who, and I got one whose name was codenamed Duchess, which I appreciated because it's an Archer reference. And uh, this individual, I, I, I shared the problem with them. And like ultimately after three or four back and forths, it kind of like the conversation reached a natural end of like, this is just how it is. Which from the perspective of a support engineer, regardless of how senior they are in the organization, this is a product design fuck up. Like, I'll get to the that in a second. Like, I was frustrated. I texted Gary again. Gary says, you know, now that you mentioned it, I remember that during COVID, I think they rolled this out then. I recall because during COVID, during the shutdowns, like March and whatnot, all these companies stopped operating. Basically, you had to hit pause on them. And they, they Stripe and they, those companies, did not want to experience churning 100% or 80% or some massive proportion of their subscriber base because new videos weren't going out or, you know, the, the app wasn't working or whatever service they provided was unable to be, you know, uh, administered. And you couldn't just cancel them all like a bulk cancel and a bulk startup didn't make sense either. And so that's where the feature came from. It was an emergency patch, you know, goes out right away. And, and that would explain why the naming is stupid and why the document doesn't make any sense and why it's kind of like it's a COVID euphemism now. Like So like in, in the context of spring 2020, makes all kind of sense, you know? <sighs> Scanning QR codes made all kinds of sense. But then similar to QR codes, we should have stopped doing it maybe <laughs> after the emergency phase of the pandemic. <laughs> Because now we live in a world where cheapskate restaurants don't want to give you menus anymore and where somebody built this thing called a billing portal on Stripe and they were like, oh yeah, like it's a, there's a card on the card wall that the product owner wrote and the product management pe people say that we should have a pause feature, you know, so that you can pause your subscriptions. And this is Stripe. Now keep in mind, Stripe is the most successful payment processor on the planet. Full stop. They are the 800 pound gorilla that's earning 3% off the back of just about every single thing that you spend on the internet. So they're not, I'm not punching down here when I say what kind of fucking moron grabs off the card wall, a pause subscription feature for customers to click 
I want to pause my subscription for one, two, three, four months. And then rather than look at like what the code does, what the documentation for the code is, just does, you know, command P or command T in his editor, their editor. I don't mean to target a particular engineer. It's a large company. This had to go through many, many people to hit production. It is still in production. And now it has become part of the cultural like ether surrounding not only the company's support, but also if you search for this shit on Reddit, like I was talking to ChatGPT4 about this and it's like, oh yeah, a lot of people are pissed about this. And like, here's a whole bunch of GitHub issues of people just being fucking confused. <laughs> cool, man. Thanks. So you, you grab the card off the card wall. I realize no one uses actual agile card walls anymore, but uh, this is a podcast and I need a gesture to make. And I'm, I'm my, my thumb and finger are, are plucking on index card, taking a little uh, uh, thumbtack. I'm looking at the front and it says, uh, as a user, I want to be able to pause my subscription for a few months and be able to select how long and not be, not be charged. And like you flip it over to the back. And the acceptance criteria, you know, has this UI. I can click it myself. I, I can set the time. I can set no time. And then during that time, I'm not charged. And some developer, they sit down at their computer and they hit command P and they type pause and they see, oh, look, we've already got a whole bunch of Ruby classes or a whole bunch of Golang or Rust or whatever the fuck about pausing subscription products. That's what I want to do here. Neat. And I could like, you know, there's already a thing called pause. This is a thing about naming and why naming an organization in code is so important. If you pick a name that might have multiple meanings and you claim the top level namespace for that word, uh, like pause in this case, I suppose, it means that if anyone else needs a similar or same named thing, like a homonym <laughs> uh, in the future, they have to either organize it in some broom closet like customer driven colon colon pause or billing portal colon colon pause capital B, but not the other kind of pause or come up with a totally different name altogether. And obviously for customer facing uh, end user facing concepts, that's it's more important to get the naming right because you know, people, end users will see it, but also like, you're not going to convince the world that this isn't called pausing a subscription. You're not going to say like, um, uh, you're not going to put, put the word chillax on the button and say, Oh yeah, I'm just going to chillax this subscription for, you know, one to three gargle gooks. I'm you're not going to educate the populace on some new lingo, but you've already got a class called pause. And so the, the developer looks at it and, Developers in general, I think, don't think about this problem, how, how just of paramount importance code organization and naming is, and of like, what are the consequences of picking too good of a name that you box out other uses of the name? Like, if I had been asked to make the first feature, really, it's, <laughs> it's China's fault for leaking the coronavirus out of that Wuhan lab. But a close runner up is the Stripe developer who probably just named this fucking thing pause. Now, granted, everyone was having a tough time in March 2020 or whenever. But like whoever called it pause for the purposes of this emergency feature 
really should have namesca namespaced the code in a folder and with like, you know, in a, a, a parent module named like emergency COVID response shit. And then like all of the, I've got a Ruby gem called to do or die. I would have had that gem in there and I would have said, you know, uh, this, this class or this method, you know, to do or die on, and then given it a date a few months out so that the code path would blow up in, in development and test mode. Like when I was running my tests to force me to think, do I still need this? Is this worth keeping around? But like, keep the name. So like, like it's such an exceptional case, given an exceptional name, because then what happens is a couple years later, a normal case comes around, but the normal name that's obvious is already taken. This is what pausing subscription should be, is what the customer wants to do, is I don't want to pay for this, and I also expect that I will not for free receive the product that I am not paying for. But developer picks the card off the wall, sees those acceptance criteria, plugs in this pause thing, and it literally does those things. It literally stops collecting payments. The user interface does what it, the card says it should do. And, oh yeah, it just means that the merchants have no real functional way of knowing whether or not an active subscriber should be receiving the service or good. Or, uh, 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 I, what are we even doing here? Like, this is, this is such a stupid goddamn bug and such a colossal product management fuck up that I, I don't, I don't know what. This is entering you had one job territory. And I don't mean to sound like I said, Stripe's really big. I'm being pretty goddamn brusque here because they are the 800 pound gorilla. I am not, as far as I know, punching down <laughs> at Stripe. I am, I am fucking flabbergasted that this ever shipped and that this is still there and that this is like a feature that is very prominent if not turned on automatically. Maybe it wasn't a default. Maybe Becky just clicked it. Give him the benefit of the doubt. I... Pause doesn't mean pause if you're a Stripe merchant or a customer on their billing portal. Pause means, oh, fuck, COVID just happened. I got to give my shit away for free or otherwise not collect payment or my business ends. I use the word pause sometimes in colloquial, you know, in conversation. And I, for whatever reason, am almost always using it the first way and never the second way because it's not goddamn fucking COVID anymore. These motherfucking idiots. I'm sorry. That was too much. I already referenced that there was a complaint earlier to the podcast about swearing, but I am expressing passion because Stripe and a lot of its engineers made fuck tons of money at that IPO. And a lot of them walked out the door, retired early. Good for them. But what are they? Like, you have a social responsibility, like to the world when you corner a market and you're the only real show in town to just like do the thing and give a fuck. Like when you miss it, when you just beef it this fucking hard and nobody knows like, no, this isn't documented. 
There's not a blog post out there. that's like, Hey, FYI, pausing isn't pausing. There are some that are like, here's a way to work around it. Or here's how to back into trying to ascertain and discern whether or not a subscription is active, but not actually active. And it's by like loading up these invoices. Like I was saying, like that's a workaround. And what is software development except for sins of the past coming back to haunt us and us as the, the next generation, the next people in the door having to just clean house, work around it, deal with it up on that 14th story of the Jenga tower as the foundation starts to crumble below. Like there is a reason this industry spits people up and chews people out. Wait a second. You know what I mean? In proportion to how much they give a shit, like I look at this and I'm just like, how did this happen? And not only how did it happen, how is it still happening? And how is it that when I bring this up with support, I get, that's just how it is. And systemically my career, all it did was show me like, this is, this is what the system does. Of course, everyone's individual incentives are exactly playing out just as you'd expect. Like no one's going to get a bonus for like figuring this thing out and systems. And if you read like DW Deming or any sort of systems thinking stuff, like you have to be an incredibly conscientious organization to be thinking about how do I reward like the red team in my organization to kind of find shit like this and fix it that even though it exists completely outside the main feedback loop of how the business makes money or how it grows. So I get it. I know why this isn't fixed. Um, but maybe if there are remote stripe workers in Argentina, somebody here is listening because Jesus, goddamn Christ, maybe I'll just release this transcript so that maybe then somebody Googling for this will find, find this. I, I might need a minute. Good. Mm. You know what? I went on this big old rant and I forgot to give the caveat that I could be totally wrong. I could just be misunderstanding everything. Maybe this had nothing to do with COVID. That was just a thing that Gary suggested or remembered. Maybe the feature makes a complete amount of sense. And if it does, I apologize. And I would love for somebody who's used Stripe and knows how this shit works to enlighten me and correct me. And I will spend version seven of this podcast singing your praises and apologizing and you know 49 lashes and all that shit <laughs> i realize i've gone full-blown am radio and I, I told myself this morning i'm not gonna go full-blown am radio today but here i here 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 we are so yes caveat I have a bad habit of coming into a new product or a new framework or a new technology, scoping out the joint, using it in anger for three minutes, and then deciding that everyone involved is a fucking moron. I, some of you have seen me do this in the past. I, it's a bad habit, but I like, you know, I feel like I did more tire kicking this time around than usual before, uh, uh, getting on the, getting on the air. And I'm pretty sure this is just pausing ain't pausing. So yeah, tell your friends, tell your neighbors, ask them, Hey, do you know anything about the Stripe API? And also while you're at it, 
go into every single subscription you have and click pause and see what happens. <laughs> that's how that's how this gets fixed is uh, we start a movement of pausing everyone's subscriptions until until somebody fucking gives a call. Once again, I'll take a second. Apologize for the strong language. Anything there that sounded ad hominem, it's not my intention. I just, I, I feel like the bigger you are as a company, the greater your responsibility to execute the core of your business. Not only like not at a level of excellence, not, you know, I don't expect boutique curated, you know, I don't expect McDonald's to be serving Wagyu burgers just because they're big. In fact, the bigness is why they can't. But if I like go up to like a McDonald's tablet and I put in an order and I, I, I add French fries to my, to my cart and then in the checkout screen, I hit cancel. The tablet doesn't just spit out free French fries every month for the rest of my life. I mean, maybe it does. That would be great. But when the payment processor Stripe is probably bigger than every single company that uses Stripe for payments, or just about, they're effectively robbing all those small and medium businesses of significant amounts of revenue because they didn't think through this feature because they left it up because they built a support system that insulates them from escalating this kind of feedback or even recognizing that it is like, you know, like so far, the only direct outreach that I've done is that chat thread. And I'm talking to somebody who seemed very, very smart that like the purpose of this pause feature was this uh, temporary free service. And the docs do say that that's what the docs say from, from the merchant side. Uh, but that's not what the UI says on the billing portal. And it's not what like it is presented to customers. And of course it makes zero sense why you'd give a merchant facing emergency feature to customers. It's obvious how this happened. It's a pretty clear line of sight. Um, I just wish more people gave a shit, not just doing a good job, not just writing good code and writing good tests, but like you pick up a thing that somebody asks you to do and you think hard about it. And you don't just think literally of like, Oh, user must be able to click pause. User must be able to select an optional amount of time to pause. User must, after clicking pause, the state of the pause collection must happen. You know, then the subsequent invoice would be void or whatever. Like, like read the like literal thing. You got to think about like, what's it really mean? You know, what else might happen, have to happen? Because if you've done any amount of software development, it is the developer's responsibility to educate product people or business people who are non-technical about all of the other little myriad consequences and externalities and oh gotchas and the goes into's that like might be impacted by what sounds like a trivial surface level feature 
well, yeah, we could do that, but we'd have to like, you know, completely re-architect the database. And so we're really good at it. We're really good at raising all the, kicking up the dust of why something's hard to do when those externalities give us, you know, an excuse for why things are going to take us longer or that it's not a good idea to do them. We're really bad when a feature looks easy to implement as described to nevertheless throw a wrench in the gears and say, actually, even though maybe me selfishly as a developer, maybe I am under uh, right now, performance reviews are big. A lot of HR departments, a lot of large tech companies, I haven't looked up Stripe and if they're laying people off, but like HR developments are on alert to performance manage people who work at product companies that hire too many people over COVID. And one of the number one ways, because HR developer, HR folks are typically also not engineering management experts is look at the productivity, look at how many PRs they close or how many lines of code they write or how much they comment on reviews or, and like, if you want to be as results based as you can be, how many features do they get out the door? If, if I have the opportunity to demonstrate, maybe I'm on a pip or something, or maybe I just want to get in the next promotion. I'm able to demonstrate, like I can get a feature out the door. The system is going to push me to take the layup. Why would I think the hard thought? Why would I let that hard thought lead me to tell the product owner it's actually got to be more complicated than it might initially sound? Why would I then, still having grabbed that card that is now bigger than anyone budgeted for it to be, do all of that work and slow myself down such that the whole my whole OKR is now fucked because this quarter I didn't get anything done except for this one feature that everyone in the business thought would take a day. And it's not like product, like they, you know, yes, it is their responsibility, I suppose, to keep in mind, oh, like existing features and what they were there for and so forth. Like you should, you know, no product is so massive that a reasonable product expert over the, you know, whose domain is the the care and feeding of that product shouldn't have their arms around all of this. So yeah, I guess product failed in that sense. But if you look at it through, um, you know, through their lens, maybe that when they wrote the stuff, like, you know, the, the engineer is asking them, Hey, give me the short stories. Don't give me a full blown spec. Don't write 500 pages into a Jira ticket. Just give me the, the, the highlights. Maybe in their head, they're thinking like, yeah, this has nothing to do with the COVID pause. In fact, if you ask them, does this have to do with the COVID pause? They'd say, no, it's that the conversation never happened. Ron Jeffrey is one of the um, Agile Manifesto signatories. Uh, I think it was Ron would say that those little index cards, like, the, and and you know, I'm talking about index cards, right? I'm referring to Agile, but like, if you have um, GitHub issues or if you use Jira or whatever, like, same shit. Any description of like a user story or a feature is a promise to have a conversation. That's it. If you think software is going to get built and be good because you threw some shit over the fence, wiped your hands clean, and now it's the next guy's job in the, you know, industrial dystopia of like (laughs) treating software like a manufacturing process, then I don't know what to tell you. Like, this is what you get. 
if you view it as a collaborative exercise, like, like if I was working in a product company, like as an engineer, my best friend is now this, this product person. I want to get inside their head. I want to, I want to not only know what they want. I know. I want to know why they want it. I want to know what their incentives are. I would ask them straight up. What's your bonus based on what, what does the business want from you? What does it mean for you to get a promotion? I would care more fucking about that than I'd care about my own career goals. Because if I know the person who's directing my work, if I know the headspace of that person, then when they say a sentence, users should be able to pause in the billing portal, then I will be able to detect with nuance when I need to ask the follow-up. If I got to know them even better, understand their mannerisms, get to know them as a friend, understand what personal stresses might they be under right now. You know, like I've seen product people are pinched, you know, like they are product. People are like John Boehner in 2011, trying to negotiate the sequester with, with Barack Obama. They have a, a, a debt ceiling standoff and John Boehner goes to the White House and he spends eight hours with Obama and Biden talking about here's what the deal looks like. But and now we fast forward and we can see like this was, I think, uh, a prelude to things to come in terms of how Congress operates. Boehner didn't have the full faith of his caucus. And so he wasn't able to actually negotiate. He could just show up and have a conversation and be like, yeah, I, I agree with you, but caucus will never go for it or I, I could bring it to them. And so then instead of have, being able to actually hash things out in person and arrive at real decisions, he would just, you know, take his car back and forth to the hill and have the same conversation with a different audience, come to a different outcome, come back to the White House, and then like nothing happens. And you could see this happening in real time. It was a complete breakdown of uh, institutional, like, negotiating, uh, what do you call it? Like, like mechanics. Like, it was impossible. He, it's like, it's like, you're, 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 you're slapping each other with wet noodles. It's just, it's, it, 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 nothing was going to happen. There was no tension in the rope, I guess, to actually arrive at like, this is the halfway point. And, and so you wind up with nonsense, which is where we wound up. Product owner is the same fucking thing, right? Like <laughs> the product owner in a startup is very often the founder. And so that's like nice because they have a lot of authority. There's not somebody over them who's telling them what to do. But like if they're a VC backed company, even then they, they probably got a lot of pressure that they feel from investors and from advisors. But in a big company, product managers are like, I think that there is a newfound respect for the discipline in terms of mechanically, like what, what are good practices and what's a good kind of person in this role. But like when we, again, this is another agile thing, I suppose. Like when we think about like, why did scrum fail? A lot of people point to, or why did um, extreme programming like not really take off? In my opinion, the, the fulcrum of failure was always this imagined product owner. It was an abdication of like how reality really is and respecting that for a fantasy that like in a medium to large business, 
you'd have a product management manager person who would not only know the product, not only know what would be good for the product in terms of what's good for the business and the ROI that they're trying to get on software, but have the authority to actually make a fucking decision that matters. Because I don't know what to tell you, like 99 out of 100 times that I've been in a non-trivial conversation with a product owner or product manager about like a really thorny thing where like the right thing to do is going to blow their timeline or the thing that they're literally being, being not, not that they're asking for, but that they're being told to ask for or told to scope out or told to break down into smaller bits that, you know, developers with our little baby mouths can, can chew on them told that's actually 10 times bigger than they think. And it just blows their budget. Or when they're handed a direction for the product that is very obviously to anyone who's paying attention, you know, being higher up in an organization doesn't make you smarter. It doesn't make you like, you might have more experience or whatever, but like really all you have is more authority. And if you're a middle manager product owner and like you're giving the wrong direct, you're being given the wrong direction from leadership, like it's leadership's job to set the direction. And if you're just like, you know, Joe developer listening and you're like, well, this direction is going to lead us off a fucking cliff. The product owner, what do they say is the same thing I heard in the, the customer support chat. That's just how it is. Like, so the, you know, I guess it's maybe a good thing that we've moved from product owner as a term and more to product manager because it's never been an owner. And it's never been a successful collaboration model because product managers typically have no power and no authority to decide. And sometimes they do. If I was a product manager, if I was advising somebody who wanted to go into product management, I'd be like, you got to go to a company that's going to give you the actual authority to actually make decisions and hard calls. And there will be a scope, like there will be an, an, an interface between you and leadership. But like, whether it's you own the GL for this product or for this business unit, uh, or it's a series of rules and norms about like, here's what me as leadership can, can tell you to do and not tell you to do, or here's the, like the data that you provide me in terms of costs and outcomes and revenue or something. Uh, and, and I don't get to meddle at a lower level of abstraction than that you know, actually equip them and, 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 and give them authority, then that, you, that might be a good product management role. I am unsure if there's a product manager role <laughs> at any non-trivially large company that's like, as I just described, because that's more like, you know, a director or VP level role probably in most companies. And those people, because they've got 35 fucking Zooms a week, they probably don't have time to be the product owner. And that's how the product owner role actually ended up shaking out or product management roles. It's like somebody to who doesn't already have 30 hours of meetings a week to go and have 30 more hours of meetings a week. Don't call them a project manager. Like you take the Gantt chart away. You take the scoping and the estimation nonsense and the, the pseudo management of, of engineers away. But like that wasn't the problem. The problem was somebody in the room who has the authority and expertise and perspective to actually make a fucking decision and own it own it through to completion, own it through to consequence and, and course correct. And that's the failure that probably happened here. So anyway, I was hoping to feel better after getting that off my chest, but I don't, um, moving right along. 
Let's talk about video games. <laughs> uh, recommendations for this, uh, this episode. Uh, I started playing, uh, cause it hit game pass, uh, a popular game from a couple years ago called arcade paradise. You play a eighties punk who is, uh, whose father has you working at a laundromat that, that the father owns. And you have to, you know, clean. it's like a wash and fold, I guess. Although you don't fold, but like laundry shows up, you put it in the laundry machine, you wait two and a half minutes, you put it in the dryer, you wait two and a half minutes, you put it on the uh, table at the end of the day uh, when it's done. And then, and then you get ranked based on how long that takes. And then the trash piles up. Uh, you, you, you pick up the trash gum gets stuck to things. You pull the gum, uh, your trash bag gets full. You drop it in the, the, the dumpster, but it has the twist of there's some arcade games in the back and you realize like, Oh, I could just like also open, unlock the store and let people play arcade games and collect money from the, the arcade games. And I could like reorganize them and have more popular games be over by the less popular games to give them a boost. And I can go online. I can order new cabinets and add new games. And all the games are made up. Like they're, they're, they're evocative of eighties arcade games um, and puzzles and stuff. Um, there's one called stack overflow where you're literally stacking boxes and, and uh, to match a pattern. Uh, it's really cute. Uh, and it's, uh, it's like a weird business sim because then you, you pretty quickly are doing the math on like, would I make more money, uh, for getting the laundry and just letting it pile up and focusing squarely on just, uh, playing a lot of this game to make it more, if you, the more you play a game, the more popular it gets. So like, that's the only incentive to play the games. Cause of course the points don't matter or whatever. Um, and so the more you play it, the more it'll generate typically. Uh, anyway, real beautiful game too. Like a really great art. Uh, yeah. So arcade paradise, maybe I'll go play some of that. Cool off. Uh, you, their payment processor is coins. You put coins in the box. And uh, if you pause putting coins in the box, you don't get to fucking play anymore. It's a very, it's that second of the two definitions of pause that I shared earlier. For fuck's sake. Uh, also a recommendation, the killer. Netflix, Michael Fassbender, David Fincher. If you like those things, watch The Killer. Uh, it's fine. It's a it's more of a, a tonal piece than something I'm going to walk away from and be like thinking about its story ever again. But it's fine. Uh, one thing that stood out to me in the movie though is there's like a towards the end. Uh, uh, Michael Fassbender gets a trial membership to Equinox, but instead of Equinox, because it's like a murder in film, it's a, it's a nonsense other one called Balakwax or something like that. <laughs> and I just, I, you know, I don't know if it's a meant to be a joke, but it was a silly looking word. And it reminded me of Bally total fitness. Uh, I had, uh, my teacher, I had, I had the same teacher. Uh, for three calendar years, but because of block scheduling and me taking six math classes the first three years of high school, I think I had her for four of them. And so Miss Jonick and I got to know each other really well. And when I was a junior, she uh, invited me and a friend uh, to go to the Bally Total Fitness that she worked at um, as a yoga instructor, go to a yoga class. And I was embarrassed. I sat in the back and I only went once. Might be the only yoga class I ever like properly went to outside the context of just being in a hotel and board that had a, maybe had a yoga lesson or something. Uh, and ever since, cause we did a lot of group work in her classes, <laughs> I uh, came up with the, 
uh, joke team name. Cause you got to come up with like a project team name. And so I would always name my project teams for the rest of high school and all of college. And I hadn't thought about this in years, but the Balakwax from the killer made me think of it. Uh, the name was team Bally total fitness, extreme racing. And I don't remember I, my brain just works that way. I don't remember where I picked that up. Maybe if I Google it, it's like literally a reference to some cartoon. Uh, but I, <laughs> uh, I always liked it cause I could get a sensible chuckle out of somebody and it also didn't fit on forms nicely. Uh, so the killer is a movie. Uh, a couple of mailbag things were right up pushing on two hours. Jason asks, Wondering if your podcast feed supports web mentions? I believe Mastodon does, so simply sharing a link in a Mastodon post should trigger a web mention callback to podcast to the podcast URL. And it would be a way for your podcast feed to collect public comments. Kind of like I think that's like pings, right? Like link backs. Though you'd have to ensure the canonical feed URL is the one that has the web mention data, metadata. And then a parenthetical edit. Later investigation says no, Mastodon doesn't implement them, which surprises me. Uh, so uh, Jason, uh, he asked and answered his question inside of the email. Uh, thank you, Jason. So no, the podcast doesn't support web mentions. Uh, it is a static site. It's a Hugo site. It's all static generated. So there's no data source that, like for, for shit like that, like for a webhook to call back to. Um, I could make one, I guess. It would be neat to see who's linking to my stuff generally, I think. Um, like the blog, because like, if I'm not on social media, I'm sort of just shouting into the void. Um, but I'm also fine with that. So I don't know if, if, if you've got a good web mention strategy for static site generators like Hugo, maybe there's a service that does this nicely, um, that I could just, you know, slurp down and then maybe periodically, uh, have those, uh, republish into the site. Well, that would be pretty neat. So podcast at surls.co. Thank you, Jason, for mailing me. Uh, I'm going to skip this next one. It's too heavy. Maybe next time. Got to come off this. Uh, pick up the next. Uh, Matt asks, why are so many engineers and tech people obsessed with Costco? Hmm. I was unaware of this, and yet I am obsessed with Costco. So maybe I'm part of the problem. And yet I had a free membership to Sam's club and I never wanted to go there because my dad had one. Why did I like Costco more? I don't really know. I mean, like most of them, they're basically the same thing. A warehouse where they, they mostly make the money on subscriptions. Costco. I think if I had to try to like draw the Venn diagram here in my mind, what is it about the, the stereotypical programmer mind and liking Costco? I think, there's an efficiency to it. First of all, the ruthlessness of like, it's just a warehouse. Like there's no dressing. There's no, they don't, they don't, they don't sell you shit really on upsells and end caps and, you know, organizing and layout and psychological tricks. I think developers in general have become very sensitive to those because we're the ones making them. <laughs> everywhere as we hire like half the world's uh uh psychologist majors to try to figure out how to like prevent churn and SaaS apps despite how pause buttons sometimes don't work 
So there's that there's, I think just essentialism and minimalism, you know, you, 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 you don't want a company to make the profit on each good you buy. You'd rather pay for a membership to get good access to goods, right? At, at cost or, or near nearly at cost. So I think there's a certain purity there too. Also quite unlike the zero margin hellscape that is SaaS. Uh, <laughs> I think there's a, the same kind of like programmer bent that's like really into Soylent. Like I'm going to only own, and this is again, me six of the same t-shirt, six of the pair, same underwear and six pairs of white socks. Like Costco is great for that. I'll just buy those three things in six packs and never think about them again. Whereas like a normal clothing realtor or realtor retailer wouldn't really do it for me. There's that, you know, with food, same thing, right? You know, you just buy bulk, the things that you eat and you eat the same thing every day. I think it's, it scratches a particular itch that is, you know, often associated with, you know, not clinical autism, but like, you know, people referencing it in a, in a sort of pop inappropriate non-pathologized sense uh or or ocd or whatever same same story so yeah it fits that stereotype i guess um i think there's also the i wonder if there's anything to the like dollar 50 like the fact that they're the prices haven't gone up on the on on the rotisserie chickens or the the hot dogs Obviously, that's a strong psychological talk about psychological design at Costco. Like, it's a strong retention tool for them to keep people in the membership because they're like, well, I mean, like, membership kind of pays for itself because I eat 10 of those rotisserie chickens a year every time I go and get the hot dog and soda for a buck 50. I wonder if there's a, a programmer hook there. Hmm. Good question. Hopefully, this was a satisfying answer, Matt. I appreciate you. Um, do, 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 checking around. Ah, Josh. Josh asks, any weird interactions or comments from other people on the plane, presumably when I was flying with my Vision Pro, including but not limited to flight attendants? I'm hoping to travel with mine and want to be prepared. Well, in version four of this uh, ongoing series, I discussed what it was like flying on a plane. I discussed that the flight attendants were like a little too into it, <laughs> uh, at least in weekend one. Uh, I, for travel purposes, the only thing I'd add, I guess, is figuring out how you want to travel with it in advance. I think the dual loop band is probably about as portable as you're going to get. So I'd probably travel with that one. I would not bring the, if a, if a NASA astronaut like, like, uh, uh, laid an egg. That's what the very large Apple uh, travel case looks like. I would probably just stick it in raw in the bag, face down with enough socks around it, and it'll be fine. Uh, I might get a like a lens cover. So so there's like for the Quest. I'm sure it's a similar size. Ideally, it would be a perfect fit, or it'd be magnetic, um, something to cover the lenses. That's the only thing I'm really worried about. Like the, the front glass gets scuffed, I don't care really. Like, and plus, it has the really nice sock for the front, so I'd probably travel with that, I guess. But the because it would add some extra cushion as well if you put it. I, I put it in the bag face down. Uh, but the hmm, 
Yeah, the putting something in front of the lens. I only worry about the lens because anything else in the bag that's above above the Vision Pro, if it gets thrown in the same compartment, could scratch lenses. Uh, so so there are products for that, and that's probably the next the only thing that I would add to my loadout. So that's my best effort at responding to this. Sorry, I guess I read a question that I'd already kind of answered. But I did the requisite three mailbags. Uh, I need more. The mailbag is running dry. I've only got a dozen or so other things. And maybe if I haven't read them yet, it's time for a refreshing. So if any anything comes up, if you've got web mention stuff, if you've got Stripe stories, if you've got a favorite cooperative game for the Sega Genesis or the Super Nintendo, if you've got a way to make a HomePod receive a phone call or otherwise allow a family member to ring all the HomePods in the house in the event that they have to get people's attention, you let me know. Apart from Intercom, I already talked about that. All right. I, I have exerted everything that I can. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go away now. <laughs>